Hello everybody, quick warning before we get started, this entire episode centers around child loss, so if that is a sensitive subject for you, this may be an episode you want to skip. Uh, But with that, let's get on with the episode. If William Shakespeare wrote about his son's death at all, he concealed it in the lines of his late sonnets and plays that reveal a depth of understanding about grief. Vanessa Thorpe, alas poor Hamlet in The Guardian. Because there is so little known about Shakespeare's private life, we are left to speculate. We know nothing of his home life and his relationship with his family. All we know is what is contained within the surviving records. We know he had three children, two daughters and one son. We also know that his only son died at the age of 11. That's all we know of Hamnet Shakespeare. The rest is left to speculation. Hamnet seems to be a particular focus of speculation because his name reminds us of Hamlet, one of Shakespeare's most tragic characters. The similarity is not lost on us, so it is easy to assume it was not lost on Shakespeare. We don't have any of Shakespeare's personal writings, so we don't have any of his testimonies as a grieving father. However, we can look to his writing for hints of the long-lost Hamnet and what he meant to Shakespeare. Fair warning, this episode is a little more somber than usual. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a Ripe Good Scholar podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, also known as Ripe Good Scholar on a tiny corner of the internet. And I am joined, as most times, by my husband, Eli. Hi. And we're going to see if we can make Eli cry today. Aww. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about Shakespeare's only son, Hamnet. Right. Um, who passed away when he was 11. Okay, yeah, that's super sad. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about his son, particularly his influence on Shakespeare's later work. And that's despite the fact that we just don't know very much about Hamnet. We know that he was baptized on February 2nd, 1585, with his twin sister Judith, who would go on to outlive her father. And I don't think she had a kid. She did get married, I think. Hmm. Um, But she didn't get a play that was basically named after her. No, but we're going to get to that. Aww. So he died at the age of 11 um, on... He was buried on August 11th, 1596, at Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon. Now, they didn't write down causes of death at the time, so we really don't know. And I mean, um, one out of three children died before the age of ten. Yeah, that's, uh, super depressing. Yeah, so, um... Now, I did watch one video that said he he probably didn't die of plague because there wasn't, like, an abnormal number of deaths at the same time. Okay. Which, like, plague would usually indicate that. That would usually indicate plague. That's Um, right. It's another plague episode. Well, not really. Because it probably wasn't plague. Okay, so it wasn't. We don't know how Shakespeare felt about his son's death. I'm guessing sad. Like, I'm going to throw that one out there. Yes. I would assume sad, but, you know, 
He also, this is a son he didn't spend very much time with. Um, and we don't know for sure if Shakespeare was at the funeral. Really? Yeah, because if he got buried quickly and Shakespeare was too far away. And was he was in London at the time? He was either in London or traveling with the troupe. Oh. So we don't know for sure where Shakespeare was at the time. Huh. Um, now... So not a great dad, this Shakespeare guy. No, he's not. And we've established <laughs> that several times over in almost every podcast where we talk about Shakespeare. Um, but what I found interesting was I was reading an essay by Stephen Greenblatt um, where he said... Unlike Ben Jonson and others who wrote grief-stricken poems about the loss of beloved children, Shakespeare published no elegies and left no direct records of his paternal feelings. Huh. Yeah. So, now, I mean, I suppose there, it's always possible that he did, and it's just been lost to time. Um, but yeah, we, we just have no statement from him about his son's death. I mean, we really don't have any statements about anything in his personal life, do we? No, but, you know, you would think that if he was going to comment on something, it would be this. This is the only child he lost. Yeah, that's true. Now, he would have been, uh, you know, as I said earlier, one in three kids died before the age of ten. Um, one of his sisters died when he was seven, so the concept of children dying was not foreign to him. It's difficult to imagine now, but from what I understand, children dying was just a fact of life. Yeah. It was just also heartbreaking. I think, I think there's a misconception sometimes that people just kind of... There was so much children dying that people just uh, didn't worry too much about it but no the the elegies like you said ben johnson's are heart-wrenching and tragic yeah i think that i mean i think it's always going to be sad when a child dies what i read when I, I was reading about shit in particular shakespeare and his response to hamnet dying is that you know one again he probably wasn't around his son very much and two, while it was still sad, there'd be a certain amount of mental preparation that we don't have now. I think that's fair. But obviously, you know, no one's going to be like, oh, well, we'll just make another. Yeah. So, like I said, we don't have any written testimony about how Shakespeare felt, but we can look at his writing during that time and after that time. Now, we can't ignore the fact that in the four years following Hamnet's death, um, Shakespeare wrote some of his best comedies. <laughs> um, including The Merry Wives of Windsor, Much Ado About Nothing, and As You Like It. That's, that's fair. Yeah, and I mean, we have to keep in mind, personal issues aside, he would, like, he still was writing for commercial success. You know? Yeah. Now, as, again, Greenblatt said, the plays, of course, weren't purely cheerful. He also wrote many of his best tragedies at that time. 
So that was um, just when he was writing his best work. Yeah, and I mean, Hamlet and that came a little bit later. It was several years later. It wasn't like immediately following Hamnet's death he wrote Hamlet. Yeah. Um, but in, in the four years following, we do have, you know, some moments of poignancy. Like, for example, in King John, there's lines from a grieving mother um, in which she explains that it's perfectly sane to have intense grief over a child. Yeah. And it reads, Grief fills the room up of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. And that's in Act 3, Scene 4. Again, you know, you had this mother um, who people were kind of like, you know, geez, calm down, lady. And she was like, no. Yeah. Like, well, they were saying she was like, you know, she had gone insane because of grief. And she was like, no, this is perfectly sane. This is a perfectly sane response. Yeah. It's insanity is sanity there. Yeah. Okay, so that didn't make me cry, but it did make me tear up a bit. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> um, so, you know, Winter's Tale, likewise, deals with family death. Uh, yeah, I went in there expecting a comedy when we went and saw the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. Yeah, yeah, the first, the first half is, is not that funny. No, not how they played it. Uh, not, not how I read it when I reread it later. Either. That's fair. It's, it's just kind of it, it was a tragedy that they tacked on a really funny comedy to. Yeah. Really? <laughs> it was like, was like, okay, I don't have a full tragedy, so yeah. what if I turned it into a comedy at the end? Right, it was like the last half of uh, King Lear with the first half of the Merry Wives of Windsor tacked on the end. Yeah, legit. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and like I said, because of the lack of elegies or any kind of direct obvious statements on his son passing you know kind of people were like oh he must have just like buried his son and moved on and wrote a bunch of comedies and it's like well no probably not um yeah he wasn't at the burial doy well he might have been (laughs) we don't know it's not like there was a guest book you know when when stephen greenblatt was looking at you know winter's tale and the lines in king john you know he said if there is no secure link between these lines and the death of hamnet there is at the very least no reason to think that shakespeare simply buried his son and moved on unscathed jake is fair yeah i think people you know it's like oh well i mean he wasn't around i mean we act a lot of times i feel like we act like shakespeare just like totally abandoned his family and like we have no idea how often he went home. Probably not a lot. He probably essentially abandoned his family, but, you know. It's not like he was like, oh yeah, that kid. That kid I have. I mean, he's still uh, bought him a nice house, so he had to have gone there a bit. One would assume. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every time Plague hit London, he had to go back uh, and hide it in sometimes Stratford. He, sometimes he'd travel with troop remember oh right they travel spreading plague yes <laughs> they'd be like oh time to release the box of rats oh man um they were the disney world of their day <laughs> stop it 
before we move on to Hamlet, there is one more kind of notable production. The very first production of Twelfth Night took place on February 2nd, 1602, making it around what would have been Hamnet's 17th birthday. And it's about twins being reunited. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that hit that hits me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it, and, and normally I don't like buying into the, like, let's read for biographical information. Because usually that leads to nonsense. Because we can never know if that's why he wrote Twelfth Night. But it's it, interesting to look at. That's something that would have been odd to not cross his mind as he wrote it. The fact that he was writing about a young woman who lost her twin brother and was reunited with him. Yeah. No, I agree. I guess my my larger point with the biographical readings is because I'm gonna try to be fair and balanced here with as I take on the authorship controversy. Shakespeare's work is so vast that you could match a lot of biographies up to place. Oh, that's that's fair. And things like that. However, I think that if you aren't using it as, like, evidence necessarily that, like... Like, I, for example, if I was arguing William Shakespeare of Stratford wrote the works attributed to him, I'm not going to say, well, Twelfth Night premiered on his dead son's 17th birthday. So clearly... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not evidence that... That alone is not evidence Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, but it's like, oh... That probably, you know... Yeah, it just gives an interest... It can give an interesting perspective on the play. A father reuniting his long-lost twins through writing in a way that will never happen in real life. I mean... Yeah. He can't ignore that 17 is still an important-ish birthday, at least. Like, they're getting ready to go into adulthood. For, for, For the listener, if you hear the sound of snoring in the background... That's because our beagle hopped on the couch between us and yeah. is apparently a sleepy boy. So now, of course, we move on to the big one, Hamlet. The most speculation goes on with Hamnet's effect on Hamlet. And it's not surprising that we do that because of the strong themes of grief, even though it's a son losing a father, not a father losing a son, but... Yeah. The grief is still there. Now... Does it add up exactly? No. Why? Because this is based on an actual Danish tale. Yeah, I heard about that. And in fact, there was... We know from the records of the playhouses that there was a play called Hamlet that had already had enough commercial success to be commented on by contemporaries, but was lost like we don't have that play we don't know for sure who wrote it um i think greenblatt's article said that they think kid thomas kid wrote it but i don't know i'm willing to bet it had a lot more revenge and a lot less musing on the nature of revenge possibly <laughs> um ha- hamlet reads very much like uh someone took an action movie plot and just threw donnie darko into the middle of it it's fair and, and Shakespeare, above all, was a man of the theater, a, a man of business. He would have been like, oh, people really liked that Hamlet play. 
maybe I'll write one of my own. Um, because this is one where we don't, you know, a lot of times we could really pin down, like, exactly, like, we know exactly what translation of Plutarch Shakespeare used to write, like, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra. Interesting. Because he stole from them so intensely. Uh, <laughs> but this one, we don't have, like, a for sure, like, there's probably, but who knows. But we also have this text of a play that was lost. So maybe he just lifted that. Because we have to keep... Writers stole from each other all the time. Marlowe wrote The Jew of Malta. Shakespeare wrote The Merchant of Venice. <laughs> like, And I'm sure there are a lot of capacity, like a lot of kind of back and forth like that we could find if we had as many plays of all these other writers than that we have of Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we had all the plays Thomas Kidd wrote, we could probably see like, oh yeah, he wrote a Henry VI. Also, maybe it was better. Who knows? What better than that monstrosity? <laughs> now, one thing that kind of as a sidebar, but kind of related as I was reading this um, Greenblatt article, it wasn't directly related to Hamnet, but I found it interesting because it discussed the evolution of Shakespeare's writing and particularly his ability to write introspection. So he cited a few examples like Richard III. Richard III, it, you know, it's a great play. It's well written, but his kind of like inner thoughts when he spews them out are very, I'm saying what I think. Do, do, do. It's, it's. Oh, yeah. It's the same kind of dialogue you'd expect from Doctor Doom in a comic book. Like, yes. My plan is really this. <laughs> yeah. So then you have Richard II. Um, particularly his scene when he's in prison. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely poetic, but also not necessarily reflective of, like, how people kind of think even, you know? Yeah. So then we get to Brutus and Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. And he has a lot of kind of starts and stops and moves around a little bit. It's not quite so, this, this, and this is why I must kill Caesar. Right. You know, it, it, it whines a little bit. Yeah, he, and, he's conflicted about it. Yeah, which is more reflective of, like, actual thought patterns. So then we get to Hamlet, where we have these beautiful soliloquies full of deep introspection and emotion and thought, but also that, like, feel kind of real. And, like, so it's just this strong evolution. Like, Hamlet marked a shift in his writing. And I think that's also a reason a lot of people go like, well, was there influence on actual f feelings he had over Hamnet that made this so impactful? And it, But it's not like he just woke up one day and was like, I'm going to tap into my emotions. He had been building up to writing better introspection for years, yeah. for his whole writing career, you know? I just thought it was an interesting... No, that's a really interesting point. It also looks at Shakespeare like a writer and not the god of writing. He, yes. He's a writer who got better over time. <laughs> what? No, everything he wrote was perfect. Everything. Yep. Especially Henry VI. Especially Henry VI. I'm going to go a podcast where we just rail on Henry VI. <laughs> um, we win every battle and lose the war. <laughs> 
Yay. Yay. Now, he wrote Hamlet years after his son's death. But at the time, Hamlet and Hamnet were interchangeable. They were the same name, essentially. While he pulled from previous a previous successful play and a Danish tale to write the revenge tragedy of Hamlet, it's hard to imagine that repeatedly writing Hamlet over and over and over and over again wouldn't make him think. He, he essentially wrote his son's name over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You know? Huh. Yeah, that sounds like a horrible thing to go through, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is, of course, absolute, complete speculation. But I also think it's within the realm of reason that that would have tapped into some powerful emotions for him. Yeah. You know, and you have to keep in mind, too, when he was writing Hamlet, his father was very old as well. So you have the memory of a son who passed and the impending passing of a father. And as Greenblatt put it, the death of his son and the impending death of his father, a crisis of mourning and memory, could have caused a psychic disturbance that helps to explain the explosive power of Hamlet. I think it's hard to look at Hamlet and the power behind it and not imagine some sort of... Real grief. Yeah, and and real emotional connection to the author. Yeah. I can see that. Could not be. I mean, people have written powerful things on emotions that they weren't necessarily, like, feeling at the time, but it's just an interesting look to me at at the possible writing process. Like, you know, he sat I, down and was like, I'm going to write my own Hamlet, because that was so powerful. Oh, this turned into a it, a whole thing about yeah, grief. I can't imagine that the the person who wrote Hamlet was not familiar with grief intimately because that's just yet you can't write about grief without having felt it i think that's fair but i would also say there weren't like a lot of people at the time who like hadn't felt grief fair i mean even queen elizabeth's mom got her head chopped off yeah no that that would probably stick with you i'm just saying like death was more common at the time like, I've had people in my life who have passed, and I don't know that I could tap into the kind of grief that was clearly tapped into for Hamlet. So he's either, which, like, one, I am not a, you know, demigod of writing, so, you know, <laughs> he's not. But, like, he, I'm not an excellent writer. <laughs> No one's going to be, like, printing up folios of my blogs, like, we must preserve this. <laughs> I will. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that he, you know, wasn't tapping into some very raw emotion there. That I think, again, writing his son's name repeatedly would yeah. allow to happen. Yeah, that's fair. Now, one also um, just kind of interesting look on how Hamnet's passing may have affected Hamlet is possible religious implications. I will say off the bat, we do not know what religion Shakespeare was. I think he was a Christian. I mean, probably. <laughs> what I'm saying is we don't know if he was Protestant or Catholic. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. 
I think that was a bit of a big deal at the time. Just, just a smidge. Just a smidge. It's a smidge. It is f- pretty likely that his parents were Catholic. His father, as Elizabeth, started really cracking down on the Protestants. Like, he was still an important member of the town government, but really stepped back from the public record and life. Interesting. Um, he, was al- he also was part of this network of known Catholics. Oh. So he probably was. We don't know for sure. There was no, like, he, he was never on a list of, um, what was it called? The list of recusants? There was a list of suspected Catholics, and he was never on it. He was never like, oh, you didn't show up to church. You know. Okay. He didn't get in a bunch of trouble for that. But I don't want to say it's likely, but... It's a possibility. It's a strong possibility. Yeah. Okay. That he was Catholic. So, um, the important thing with that was we have to keep in mind that kind of all of the fanfare of Catholicism was stripped away, including funeral rites. Mm-hmm. And most importantly to a lot of the Catholics in the country, praying for the dead, having mass said for the dead, was now illegal. Really? Yes. So, for them, for Catholics, that's how a soul was released from purgatory. They died before receiving the last rites. They could, besides, you know, kind of their own atonement in purgatory, family and friends could pray for them and help get them an early release from purgatory. Interesting. Now, we see a couple kind of examples of this possible struggle here in Hamlet. You know, King Hamlet dies, is murdered while sleeping, so he obviously doesn't get last rites. Yeah. So he is doomed to walk the earth by night and essentially be in hell during the day until his sins are purged. So he's in purgatory. Mm-hmm. But it's not called purgatory, because that would be uh, too Catholic. Yes. But the imagery's there. Yeah. Because he, he does say, like, until my sins are burned away, mm-hmm. insinuating that there's a possibility to move on from where he is, which would be purgatory. Yeah. You don't move on from hell. We also see, now, in, in, in Hamlet, Ophelia has no hu- big funeral rites because she was suspected to commit suicide so they're like you're lucky she's even buried, being buried in the churchyard let alone have a service yeah but there's this kind of is this it this is all we're doing mm-hmm. which would have been familiar to people probably yeah probably would have been familiar and now some of the some of the articles I was reading really really got in hard to speculation mode with this but um, it was kind of the idea that John Shakespeare uh, Shakespeare's father who lived in the house with Hamnet so would have helped raise him mm-hmm. and like I said was very possibly Catholic would he have been trying to get his son his wealthy son to pay someone to say mass in secret for Hamnet. Hmm. Who, one would assume, died unexpectedly. 
he could have been sick. Maybe he did get last rites, but still. You know, it's just interesting. You know, and like I said, we just know nothing about that. We know nothing about his private life. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that, or that what seems like a, that seems like pretty heavy speculation, but it yeah. is interesting. Yeah. But I think it's interesting to think about because I think a lot of times we don't think about the effect like on people and their belief systems as England switched from like Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant. Yeah, that had to be hell having uh, one king be Catholic, the next king Protestant, then Catholic, then Protestant. Mm-hmm. And lots of heads rolling along the way. It, it, and, it, and it's funny that... Uh, we th- we think of Queen Elizabeth as much more tolerant than uh, the the previous rulers, but only because they were so intolerant. Yeah, Elizabeth. I mean, yeah, obviously she had her secret police and all that, and like, but you you had to kind of be slap you in the face, Catholic, to really get in trouble. <laughs> like, I believe a lot of the searches were done under James. Hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about how his life events may have influenced his writing. It is. You know, because they, I mean, they had to. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that, like, when I say I don't like biographical readings, that, like, none of the biography seeped in. But I think it's impossible to know exactly where the biography seeped in. An example that comes to my mind is there's this... Uh, author who wrote a book centering on a musician and I've I've seen many people uh, tell him it was just so refreshing to hear someone write about music who really understood musicianship and he'd always say gotcha I've never played a thing I don't think anything should be taken as gospel here except that like the facts I listed at the beginning that we actually know because it's documented but like that's just what they want you to think stop it (laughs) thus ends another episode of breaking bard please join us next time when we discuss the source material for antony and cleopatra if you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes make sure to hit subscribe if you like the podcast please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. You should also check out my new YouTube channel where I just launched my first series on a Midsummer Night's Dream. Just search Ripe Good Scholar on YouTube. See you next time, and remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art.